0: Um, I think that what I'm gonna say is resonating both with uh, Malcolm's remarks, particularly on the limits of legal culture and also the excellent presentations of Richard and Dan this morning about uh, the the problems of peace building uh, and how we anticipate uh, problems of violent conflict before they arise. I think that I can probably best Uh, introduce uh, what I'm going to say by telling you a bit about how I got interested in these problems. I always like to hear a little bit about who's talking to me, so let me tell you about myself. Um, When I was uh, 17 years old, I was living in New York City. Uh, This was during the height of the Vietnam War, Uh, and I got a summer job working with young children, uh, that was uh, at, a, at a program that was run by a group called the Catholic Worker Organization. Um, and uh, that summer, as a result of working with them, uh, I got to be very friendly with a woman named Dorothy Day, who was uh, one of the major, major figures in uh, Catholic pacifism and one of the major leaders at that time in New York City of the anti uh, war movement. And, and because of this encounter, really, uh, I became very, very attracted to pacifism and also became very opposed to the Vietnam War, which in ways that I won't go into led to about 10 years of disruption in my life before I sort of got back on track. Um, when, I, when I became an academic, and I was initially a philosophy professor for a long time, um, I, I first became academically interested in pacifism, because mainly because I was annoyed at how it was stigmatized all the time. Um, I sort of thought that one thing you had to do if you were talking about ethical issues of war and peace was to begin by assuring everyone that you weren't a pacifist. So every discussion would begin with, I'm no pacifist, uh, in the same way that during the Cold War, every discussion of justice would begin with, I'm no communist. Um, uh, and, and, and I think to some extent, this still continues. Uh, I oftentimes find in just war theory that there's a strategy of arguing, which reminds us of Thorsten Veblen's remark of ceremonial adequacy, which is that whatever we do, we can't come to conclusions that would make us a pacifist because no one wants to be a pacifist. Now, I just found, first of all, that was an intellectually odd way to argue, because it seemed to me that you should go where your conclusions take you. But I also was upset that, in fact, people were talking about pacifism with almost no knowledge of what the tradition was. They were basically setting up a picture of the pacifist as this profoundly unreasonable absolutist, as a way to therefore make their position be prima facie, reasonable, whatever it was, because at least it wasn't that. And it bothered me because I think that, first of all, pacifism is an intellectually credible position and a rich one. It's also an interesting political tradition for this reason. Pacifism is the only political tradition whose major voices are almost entirely people of color and women. You can't name another major political tradition that's like that. If you think about pacifism, major figures of the 20th century, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, if you think about American pacifism, the two major figures in the 20th century are a woman named Jane Addams, which some of you may know, and in the second half of the 20th century, uh, Dorothy Day, I think, would be the major female voice of pacifism. So it's always struck me as an interesting tradition because it does not come from mainstream culture. It does not come from mainstream academia. One of the reasons also why it's intellectually probably not as developed as others is because it's been um, a, a, an activist tradition primarily. Now, what I'm going to get to in a moment is I'm, uh, having used the word pacifism and also used the word just war theory in my title. In a moment, I'm going to suggest why both of those terms are probably not good ones. Uh, and in fact, we should think of the contrast between pacifism and just war theory somewhat differently. But I thought I would begin first by saying a, a couple of things about how I see pacifism as it's been understood as a tradition. And this will lead to a little bit then, uh, you know, sort of what my practical concerns are with it today. There are really two different types of pacifism, and an enormous problem arises of people mushing them together. All right, one tradition is what you, what I would call religious pacifism. This is the pacifism of uh, uh, that arises in Western culture out of Jesus's call to turn the other cheek. It's a type of pacifism that is most purely represented in groups like Mennonites and the Quakers. And it clearly has a religious or spiritual foundation. And it is a tradition which is skeptical of individual self-defense. And that's the thing which most, I think, bugs people about it, is because this type of pacifism tends to say, even if someone is threatening your life, you should not use lethal violence against them. Now, I should say, it tends to be that, though it's actually hard to find Figures in the religious tradition, which are which really assert that directly. Uh, Gandhi never said, for instance, that one should should be condemned for killing in self-defense. It's not a position that you find, but they they tend to say that. And certainly, groups like the Mennonites, uh, that's certainly what they believe. And there there been was an incident recently uh, in the in the United States, a very horrible, violent incident where not only did did a group of religious pacifists not fight back, but they then resisted even punishing the person for it. That's religious pacifism. That is the tradition that's actually not called pacifism, though. The name for that tradition has been non-resistance. When you read about that type of pacifism in the 19th century, the term that would be used for it is non-resistance. The term pacifism arises in the later part of the 19th century, originally simply from the word pacific for peace, And that arises from a a much different tradition. This is what I call political pacifism. Political pacifism is the position which basically says uh, wars between states should be condemned. So political pacifism is a much more specific tradition. It's a tradition about state war, state violence. It's not a tradition about individual self-defense, because what it says is the violence of states has nothing to do with individual self-defense. In fact, you're more likely to lose your life if you sign on to that than have some state defend your life. So it's a different, it's a different position. Um, and my sense is that this is the strain of pacifism that people tend not to know about. Um, certainly, they tend to be unfamiliar with this tradition of pacifism in the United States. Who are the big figures in this tradition? Well, one is Charles Sumner, uh, who was someone who was a, a very prominent senator in the United States and was a very important voice in the pacifist tradition. Another interesting figure in this pacifist tradition was William Jennings Bryant who became ultimately Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson and then resigned that position in opposition to the Vietnam War. William Jennings Bryan, who was the dominant progressive politician for 30 years in the United States, always called himself a pacifist, visited Tolstoy, thanked him for his work. And this was a, 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 and this was a tradition which, in some sense, was not marginalized the way it has been. The, and The word was not marginalized as it has become uh, now. Okay? Now, I would suggest, if you think of it this way, most people today are closer to pacifism as it was at the beginning of the 20th century than the alternative. Most people today would be considered pacifists, as the term was understood at the t- start of the 20th century. Because what were pacifists opposed to? Pacifists were opposed to those group of people that said that war was an intrinsically good thing. It wasn't just a a necessary tool, that war was an intrinsically good thing. And so when pacifism first arose as a political movement, it simply said, no, that's not true. War is a bad thing. It's always a bad thing. Even if you think it's necessary, it's always a bad thing. And I think about this when people make fun of pacifists now, because they made fun of pacifists in uh, 1910 just as much. One of the main people who made fun of pacifists was President Theodore Roosevelt. Um, because Roosevelt thought that the country needed a good war every 10 years or so. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt really believed that war was essential to the vitality of a country. Uh, In 1898, just prior to the Spanish-American War, he argued vigorously for invading Canada, not because there was any reason to invade Canada, but simply because he thought, we need a good war, and we haven't had one since 1865. What's going on? Okay? Okay. Roosevelt heaped abuse on pacifists. He called them mollycoddles, which is a word for sissies. Okay? Whatever you want to be, you don't want to be a pacifist because we need to have war. All right. Now, most people are, I think, in that sense, pacifists today. And it's one of the reasons why I sort of think we need to look at the, what the nature of the argument is. The question, though, is what does it mean to be a pacifist today? So let me turn a little bit from the question of sort of how do we understand these terms, more academic issue, to the question of how does this translate into practice? What does it mean to do that? And I'll say some things in a moment about how I then see the contrast with just war theory. For a 100 years, the main thing it meant to be a pacifist was that one refused military service. So for 100 years, the most dramatic thing it meant, perhaps, to be a pacifist, was um, uh, that if one was called up for military service, that one refused. Um, And that's certainly what it meant to me when I was 18 years old. When you were 18 years old, in my generation, uh, you had to sign up for the Selective Service System and you had to uh, indicate if you were uh, a conscientious objector or not. You could only be a conscientious objector if you were opposed to all war. You could not be a conscientious objector if you were simply opposed to the Vietnam War. You, You could only be a conscientious objector if you were opposed to all war. And they gave you the chance to explain your views in a paragraph that was about that long in a form. You, you could, I, think, I think you had about 500 words to explain why, why you were opposed to all war. And it was the first essay I wrote on, on the topic, I think. Okay. So pacifism, and its its real meaning, was linked to the practice of conscription. The interesting thing, though, is that once conscription went away, the issue of pacifism became very abstract for many people. And I found teaching this material at the time that it was becoming increasingly abstract for my students. Now, why did conscription go away? Um, There's no mystery of why conscription disappeared in the United States other countries are much more complicated, but there's no mystery of why conscription disappeared in the United States. It disappeared because the, uh, because, uh, the wealthy and powerful decided that no matter how just the war was, their children weren't going to fight it anymore. Uh, they also decided that as long as you had conscription, it would bring the issue of war home to people in a way that would raise questions about it. So what is the solution to this? You develop an army which is alienated from the average person. You develop an army which is a professional army that does not touch the lives of the average person. And then also, you finance your wars by borrowing money instead of raising taxes so that the bill will only come due at your grandchildren and not in yourself. Okay? Now, there's no question that that's what happened in the United States. You can read the policy discussions. That was what happened was that they decided to abstract war making from the average person. To me, this has an interesting result, which is that it used to be that if you told people you were a pacifist, they would say, don't you believe in defending your country? Uh, you don't tend to get that response anymore because they don't believe in defending their country either. What they believe in is hiring someone else to defend their country. Uh, and, and everyone knows that the one thing that would end any war in one second in the United States was that if they reinstituted a conscription and actually made average people fight those wars. Okay? So there has been this, this distancing. I call it alienated war of war making from the average person, but the upshot for a pacifist is that what it meant for a hundred years of I don't serve in the military, it it becomes an abstraction for people, okay? Now, what happened then, and this is sort of telling us in terms of my own itinerary, was that I came to think that pacifism, if it had any meaning, and whatever your sense of pacifism was, meant not just war resisting, but peacemaking. Uh, I had always thought of pacifism as resisting war, and I increasingly came to think of it as making peace, as peace building, as the term has been used. And so what I did in my own life was that I moved from being a professor of philosophy to a professor of law. And particularly in the law school, uh, I work in a, a program on what's called alternate dispute resolution or conflict resolution, where we teach the arts of uh, peace building, okay, in ways that I think engage a lot of what's been said today. All right. Now, um, having said that, let me make some comments on just war theory. And I'll be happy to talk a little bit more about that in discussions or later on if people want to want to talk about that, because that is something that I mainly focus on now academically, but it's not the, the focus of, of a lot of what I'm saying to you this afternoon. But let me, let me talk about uh, just war theory a bit, and then how I would want to reconceive the argument between them. Um, just war theory for political philosophers uh, was revived uh, uh, in the 1970s primarily by Michael Waltzer in a book called Just and Unjust Wars. And anyone who studies just war theory probably begins, certainly if they're in a philosophy class, with Walzer's uh, Just and Unjust Wars. Now, just war theory has been extended by a lot of other people. And some of the most distinguished voices in this are people at Oxford. Uh, to try to sort of formulate it more carefully and cautiously and clearly to take a tradition which was uh, an important tradition, but in some ways intellectually somewhat amorphous, and make it more precise. What we found out is that it's hard to make it coherent. That is, I think, the single greatest discovery about just war theory by people who work on it, is that uh, it's a compelling tradition. It turns out that there are real problems with making it intellectually uh, coherent. I'll mention one or two of them in a moment. But one way, therefore, how do I end up here? There are people who sort of say, well, the lesson there is we just have to work harder to make it coherent. And there's other people like me who say, who say well, just war theory is not going to be made coherent because it's incoherent. Uh, and what we need to do is raise more substantial questions about the whole idea of just war. And I would say it's a great credit of my colleagues in, in Oxford that, to some extent, uh, I was invited here to come and make that case. I was invited to come and sort of say, well, make the case, uh, then, if you think it can't be fleshed out. How do we do that? Okay. Um, So what's the problem with just war theory? Let me just make one problem and then give you another, even bigger problem that I think is not so much addressed as ignored. Much of just war theory today revolves around the notion of self-defense. This is an odd thing because actually a lot of wars today don't have anything to do with, they certainly have anything to do with national self-defense. Arguably, the last important major war of national self-defense was the um, Iraq invasion of Iran. Uh, That was probably one of the last clear examples of a war where one country simply invaded another, and and there seemed to be fairly clear grounds of aggression and stuff like that. Most of the other examples you tend to find are ones where either the borders are so problematic or other factors are there that the issue of self-defense gets muddied immediately. Okay. But in any event, contemporary just war theory focuses on wars of self-defense. And what it wants to basically say is, can we understand wars of national self-defense as grounded in the individual right to self-defense? So an enormous amount of the discussion today, this grows out of Walter's book, is about how do you understand national self-defense as, in some sense, built on or grounded in the individual right to self-defense. Uh, My my view is that you can't, and the reason is actually fairly simple. Individuals in self-defense defend their lives. They defend their bodily existence. States in self-defense defend their sovereignty. The problem is, is that there is no concept in political theory that is more controversial than sovereignty. It's not just that no one can tell you exactly what it is. There are seven different meanings of sovereignty. And in fact, there are more wars about the meaning of sovereignty than there are wars about self-defense. Okay? So the problem is, is that if you try and construct a theory of national self-defense, defense of sovereignty on the basis of individual self-defense, defense defense of your life. You're making what Gilbert Rao called a category mistake. You're comparing things that are simply not very comparable. Now, of course, someone would say, but I can still flesh that out. I will say you can't. And then the argument would continue. Let me mention, though, another problem that I think is worse for just war theory. Another problem that will now engage where I want to talk about in terms of what it means to do uh, pacifism uh, and also, I think, speaks to what we've been talking about today already. I think just war theory should be called the philosophy of war making. Uh, first of all, I think mean, that's what it is, a philosophy of war making. And it would also allow for a topic which doesn't tend to get discussed. We talk about peace building. I think we should talk about war building. I think when we talk about war, we are not talking about making war. We're talking about building war. We're talking about creating a culture, a society, which is always engaged in the enterprise of building war, making, making, organizing for war, as well as prosecuting it. And the surprising thing is that this aspect of war, so important to our political traditions, war building, actually gets ignored in just war theory. Just war theory is almost entirely about how do you employ violence. It has almost nothing to say about where do the means of violence come from. It has almost nothing to say about that. And so to me, the real argument is not between just war theory narrowly construed, but a philosophy of war making which would discuss both where the means of violence come from and how they're employed and the other position. Now, the other position I would call not pacifism, but the philosophy of peacemaking. I don't like the term pacifism, actually, because I think it limits also what pacifism is all about. Pacifism should be about the philosophy of peacemaking. And what that means is something that the other speakers today, I think, have already spoken to very, very, very well, which is that it's not just what you do when you get to a point of crisis. You, you, the argument is going to already be loaded if you sort of say, well, what do you do if you've gotten to a place where two uh, countries want to destroy each other? Then what does the pacifist say? Um, it's, those situations are very complicated. I mean, you know, the uh, What does the law say when two people are about to kill each other? Actually, the law doesn't say very much about that. The law usually basically says, well, we'll wait till something happens, and then we'll respond to it, Okay. So what we need to do, I think, is focus on, uh, the contrast should be philosophy of war making and philosophy of peacemaking, which is, therefore, to me, uh, a, a, a field that engages alternate dispute resolution uh, in, in, in law. Uh, and so I thought I would just conclude with a, a couple of remarks about what I do in my own course on this, because I teach a course every August back in Oregon on this, and give you some ideas of how, how I conceive it. But to me, the point is that this is all part of a philosophy of peacemaking that doesn't see war as an event but a condition. <laughs> it sees war as a state rather than an action. And I think that, that's, a, that's a tendency. Um, uh, that's a framework we need to change, okay? Well, one of the things I talk about in my uh, philosophy of peacemaking class are the things that we've talked about today, Uh, the the things about uh, the the role of the United Nation and NGOs and things like that. How do we head off violence ahead of time? How 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 do we deal with problems so they don't get to the place of violence or war? But but those are related to a number of other concerns which are much, much more domestic. And let me just indicate what they are because they have this, what I I see as the impulse of needing to bring peace building back to one's own community. Uh, We spend a week on alternatives to criminal punishment. Uh, Criminal punishment is a very, very sharp issue in the United States because of the death penalty. Uh, uh, it's a sharp issue everywhere, but that gives it a particular resonance in the United States, and an inordinate amount of the discussion of criminal punishment in the United States has reference uh, to, to, to the death penalty. Uh, one of the things I've been able to do the last couple of years is, uh, if, I don't know if people have seen the film Dead Man Walking about Sister Helen Prejean. It has Sean Penn and, Susan Sarandon in it. Helen Prejean is someone that's a very, very old friend of mine. So she actually comes to Oregon and talks about what are the things to do about things like murder and stuff like that. How do we respond to that kind of violence? I'm bringing her to Oxford, by the way, next year. She's going to be here at Oxford next year. And, 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 and hopefully, uh, we can engage Oxpeace in, in one of the events that she's doing. We spend uh, a, a week on forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, but actually, I don't spend time on South Africa. Uh, uh, we, t- we, we have some readings on it. Uh, in the United States, we spend time on slavery, and we spend time on the situation of native peoples in the United States, because what we talk about is how the issues of forgiveness and reconciliation are ones that are very, very close to home. We can't talk about them as something happening over there. We have to talk about them as something that we're still struggling with, uh, with ourselves. And finally, the last thing we talk about, it's an interesting discussion because I often have several members of the military uh, in the class. Um, We talk about, just as you have the question of what it means to be a soldier, we talk about what it means to be a peacemaker. What kind of vocation is that? And again, this gets us away from the notion that what it means to be pro-peace, a pacifist, a peacemaker, is that all of that means is, what would you do if a mugger attacked you? Which is what people think it means. What would you do if a mugger attacked you on the street? That's what it means to be a pacifist, is how you answer that. But what it means to be a pacifist or a peacemaker is someone who's engaged in a, 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 a lifelong vaca- vocation. vacation. I almost said I, I, wish it, I wish it had been that. Sometimes it's a, kind of like a vacation. A, a, a lifelong vacation which becomes integrated in to your own uh, sense of yourself, your own spirituality, your own identity, uh, if, it's, if it's to be meaningful and bring about the kind of change we want. Okay, so thank you very much.